Hello everyone, how do you do? Welcome back to the podcast, you belong to the people, the podcast where all the voices matter. In our program, we want to create a new form of doing journalism, one that is made by and for the people. In every episode, we receive guests to share their stories so we can mutually learn whilst having a very informative conversation. On our fifth episode, I'm thrilled to introduce you guys to a person that I admire from the very core of my being. Roshan Saad is a makeup artist, activist and is someone that beams light and changes everyone who comes in contact with them by the friendless and warmth. Needless to say, but his Aussie accent is also a plus on his social skills. Born in India but moved to Australia at the age of four, Roshan has learned through the years how to embrace his Indian heritage whilst conveying their life in a new country. Now, at the age of 21, they use their Instagram as a platform to spread self-love and acceptance to the brown community, especially the South Asian population. Roshan is gender non-conforming, so that's why I amuse the pronouns them, they. One of the topics very much discussed by Roshan is the skin bleach industry, a culture that has lived for ages in his own country. Skin bleaching, skin whining or fair skin are terms you're gonna hear through our talk. These terms are a result of the racial system imposed in India that for centuries have extracted how the society and its population make sense of the world and of themselves. During our episodes, we will talk about the structure of the caste system regarding one's skin color and how skin bleaching creams are the only opportunity for social mobility for dark-skinned people in India. Also, we dabble on the role-play of colorism in India as a colonial heritage and how to move away from the script nowadays. So, settling in everyone and prepare the tissues because I can attest that Roshan's story of self-acceptance regarding his heritage made me tear up during our talk, so be aware. Okay, everyone, let's get cracking. Hello, Roshan. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Um, I'm really grateful to be one of your guests on here. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm really happy you accepted to come over. Um, tell us a bit about yourself. Well, I was born in Delhi, India. So I was born there and then I was adopted uh, to an Australian family um, at the age of four. And ever since then, I've been living in Melbourne, Australia. And I've done my education here, I've done my studying here, and obviously I've worked here before too, which is really great because it's this whole journey and um, this path that I've been able to take with this adoption process. I wouldn't have had this opportunity otherwise. I'm really grateful that, um, that I've been able to get, I would say, a second chance at life because it's really um, hard to get adopted. It's not, not every child has that opportunity, so I'm definitely um, privileged in that way. As I said before in our messages, exchanges, your, your, your makeup looks are amazing and I want to know what's your relationship with makeup? When did you start venturing with it? The relationship with makeup, um, for me, it's probably just an art form it's, and, and that's all it is for me. It's, it's just a way for me to express myself and also show my creativity, whether that is on myself or others. And I fell in love with makeup when I was like about, I think, 
Well, I can't remember the exact age, but when I did dance, so I'm a professional trained dancer, so I did dancing from the age of five. That actually got me involved into loving makeup because one of the dance forms that I did was one of the eight different dance forms that you can do within the Indian culture, which is Mohiniyatam. And I did that um, for many years and I really, really loved it. And it was dramatic eyeliner and, you know, ex- excessive amounts of, you know, mascara. And it was just really, really amazing. And then once I decided that I wanted to do a different form of dance, I went into Broadway. So I did all sorts of different makeup um, for that. And so I guess dancing, um, my love for dancing uh, sort of, got me into the passion of makeup as well because it's all entwined. Do you remember your first makeup look? Actually, I do, and it was absolutely dreadful. It was, <laughs> I, there wasn't many foundation shades for, my, for me, and especially people of colour back when I started makeup in the stores that were available. And so I wore this foundation that was probably like 10 shades lighter than my skin tone and I looked like an absolute mess. So then I gave up that whole foundation thing because it was obviously not going to find a colour for my skin. So I went into eyeshadows. And so I just would slap on any kind of colour that there was on the palette and I would just have a lot of fun with it. Not attractive. I couldn't get a man, that's for sure, um, <laughs> with that look. Um <laughs> <laughs> but definitely um, it was creative um, and very artful. So, yeah. You talked about the difficulty you had found foundations that matched your skin color back when you started. Do you think the beauty industry has changed in the last few years regarding this aspect? Oh, definitely. There's there's definitely brands that have already co- uh, coexisted, but also brand brands that have obviously been created within the last five years, like Fenty Beauty, which actually, I would think, revolutionized the foundation market for people of color. Rihanna, when she came out with that foundation range, was just absolutely phenomenal. So I really, really love that she kind of set the benchmark for what was acceptable, you know, in terms of inclusivity, in terms of diversity. Um, when people walk into a makeup department store, it's not just white people that are walking in there wanting to look beautiful and enhance their, their, their aesthetics, but it's also people of color. And so I think it's really great that she revolutionized the way that we buy makeup and how interactive the process is. Um, I would think when I walked into the Sephora store for the first time, when I saw Fenty Beauty, I just loved the amount of diversity of customers that was coming in there as opposed to before Fenty Beauty came in. There was only, you know, a few people of colour walking into Sephora Australia and then now there's, you know, Muslim girls, there's black girls, there's Asian girls, there's Indian women, there's mm-hmm. boys as well, which I really, really love. And so I reckon when Fenty Beauty came out, that's when it changed the game. Yeah, I think Fenty Beauty has more than 50, 40 shades or something. Yeah, it is so impressive. And so me and along with other people of colour, we're really, really happy with that. So, yeah. Growing up, we are we are the same age, so I think we could draw some parallels. How how was your experience in wearing makeup to go to secondary school or school in general? I mean, I'm not a makeup artist or <laughs> anything of the sort, but growing up, I would apply foundation to go to to school because I had a very severe case of acne, so I wanted to clearly hide it, and I would be bullied because of that. How was your your case? So when I wore, well, first of all, I think it's really great that you expressed yourself at such a young age. And also for me, it was a way for me to express myself. And 
although the makeup wasn't very very appropriate to wear to school or to wear to for me it was little athletic so I did sport with a full face of makeup um, at the age of about 11 or, or 12 and that wasn't very very common for especially brown boys but uh, or brown people yeah yeah you know I believe there it is factual intersectionality as well in this matter that makes our experiences different from one another because I'm a white cis man which is the polar opposite of of who you are how does being Indian and gender non-conforming have played a part in your relationship with makeup growing up? Yeah, no, of course. Um, for me, when I was growing up, so I identified as male and a boy. And then as I've grown older and become an adult, I've, I've decided and figured out that I don't really conform to, you know, male or female. And so for me, it's just in terms of gender, I just... I, I'm feminine, but I'm also I have masculine attributes in certain things. But for me, when it comes to sexuality and how I present myself, it's definitely I'm just Russian. I am just who I am. And so expressing myself with makeup with such a young age, you know, I was that boy back then that wore makeup and that would go to athletics and, you know, run and do the 100-mile sprints and whatever else. And I think in the start, people were a little bit confronted by it. But then as I got to you know, be familiar with people who were there, my other peers who were obviously doing it as well, they got familiar with me and we got familiar with each other and people didn't even pay a mind to it at all. So I think it's about, at first, sometimes when you see something that's unusual, you haven't seen something like that before or it's unique, I think we are all naturally taken back. But then once you recognize and see the person and the individual, you realize they're just like everybody else, but they just choose to express themselves in a different way. And so that's what it was always like for me from a really, really young age. I was always unapologetic. Mm. Do you think you got some sort of privilege for living in a big city, which for everyone that is listening, Roshan lives in Melbourne? Oh, yes, for sure. I mean, I'm definitely way more privileged than... You know, my friends who live in India and even in the country in, in, in Australia, there are obviously different mindsets. But, you know, in India, there's a lot of, you know, stigma around boys wearing makeup or, you know, girls wearing a lot of makeup or, you know, people who look different expressing themselves in a different way. And I'm definitely so privileged. I live in Australia where people can be themselves and you may get the odd look or the curiosity stare, but it's never going to go any further than that, especially now within 2020. Um, mm -hmm. You may get remarks. I've definitely gotten comments, but I think it's not going to ever put me, I've never been able to be put in a place where I fear for my life. Whereas in, in India, where I come from, um, it is definitely a lot more brutal in terms of the backlash so, yeah, I'm definitely privileged that I live in a Western country where people just mind their own business in a way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When you went to India this year, how, how was your experience there? I honestly didn't know what to expect. Like, obviously, I'm Indian. I was born in India, but I am very Westernized. Like, I do have, I did have preconceived ideas about India. And I obviously do do a little research and read up on my country and see where it's at. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, socially and politically, but being there is different to reading about it. And so when I was there, I was so blown away about, you know, how many young people are 
able to express themselves. And this is, Mumbai is a special place because, you know, it's a lot more liberal than other parts of India. So I could be myself a little bit more relaxed in terms of its self-expression. I was wearing heels a couple of days and I was able to wear a lot of makeup and I was flowing my hair, being a super extra. And there was all these aunties and uncles mm-hmm. and like Desi boys, Desi boys meaning Indian boys, um, staring at me. And I was just like, oh my God, these stares. But like, you get used to it after a while. And I think for me, I was, because I'm so out there, obviously I'm, you know, I can't judge people for staring. It's, it's, it's out of curiosity. And so for me, it was just like, if I'm going to present myself in this way, you have to be ready for, you know, stares, you know, and you're sort of putting yourself in that situation to get stared at. Um, because it, especially in a country where it's not common for someone who looks like me to be so forward with their sexuality. And I loved it. I kind of loved the attention, to be honest. I was just like, oh, my God, all these, all these men are staring at me. All these, like, boys are, like, giving me looks. But I think definitely it was, it was so inspiring to see so many LGBTQIA plus individuals just come out when I was there for Pride and just love who they are and just inspire so many other people. And it was just amazing. I, I, I was so blown away about the amount of love and compassion there was for everybody within the community and even people who were just to stand by as and watching the parade go on. Nobody really caused any fuss. So I think that was really great. In this, in this topic, I would like to point out the in your makeup looks, you never try to smooth out the color of your skin. You rather embrace your skin color patched with traditional Indian clothing and jewelry. And one of the things that surprised me the most is how you incorporate and fuse your makeup artistry with your your Indian cultural background. How's that? And I've got to say that I love the way you do this. Oh, thank you. That's so sweet. Yeah, no, I I honestly get inspired very much about, I would probably say my go-to makeup look is probably old classic Bollywood makeup. I just think it's so beautiful with the smoky eyes and, and the beautiful black bindi, just something simple, a mascara and a nude lip. I think there's something so, you know, almost comparing it to the beauty of when you see Marilyn Monroe with that beautiful classic makeup or the Audrey Hepburn, beautiful, you know, wing liner. I think there's something about it within the Indian South Asian culture as well, where there's that classic beauty of just effortlessness. And, and that's what I love about that kind of style of makeup. It's effortless. And that's what I really try to do with a lot of my own personal makeup. But when it comes to Instagram, I, I try to step out of the lines a little bit and be a little bit more artistic, a little bit more creative. And when it comes to, you know, expressing myself with my culture and the Western side of myself. I love the fusion. I think it's important to express both of your sides. I'm, I'm Indian, but I'm also a Indian who has grown up in the West. So I'm going to love wearing, you know, a dupatta, which is the long shawl and, you know, an, an Indian jewelry, but then pair it off with a denim pair of jeans and a crop top. So I think it's, it's just about being, for me, it's about being as extra as possible. Not everyone's going to be as extroverted, but <laughs> I just love it. I think I, I just think there's no shame in it, and there's no right and wrong on how you can express yourself and and your culture. There's it's just endless. I think. Have you ever been positive like that about your heritage as a form of self-expression? Yeah, I, I I've always been proud of it. I have never ever sh- shunned away from it, and I was even when I was being bullied for being Indian or like you know being an immigrant or anything like that. That never caused me to hate where I come from. That never caused me to, you know, 
look at myself and be like, I hate the way that my skin colour looks or I hate the way that I'm Indian. I never, ever, it never turned into that self-hatred in terms of my culture or heritage. It sort of gave me a lot of insecurities about trust with people, but it never led to me. In fact, it made me love my culture even more, actually. It's the opposite of what a lot of brown kids experience or a lot of brown people in general, POC uh, individuals experience where they sort of internalize that and they believe it and then they end up resenting their culture or their skin color or where they come from. But for me, it was the opposite and it made me love my culture even more and to show it off even more. So, yeah. Roshan, as you know, I invited you to come over on the program so we could address the very unfortunate issue of skin bleaching projects in the beauty industry would you please give us a overall general explanation as to what is the skin bleaching issue please yes skin bleaching is a issue globally it's a multi-billion dollar industry which i guess like the motivation behind it how it thrives is marketing it in a way that it's sort of sells on the insecurities of a lot of people, especially people of colour. And when we're talking about the South Asian communities, particularly in India, when the industry is so, so, you know, wealthy there, it's it's really, really crazy. And it just goes to show how much of an impact these products make because of the insecurities of a lot of people. Fairness is an obsession in India because of colonialism but it also is an obsession due to the caste system that exists within the Indian culture and it's deeply rooted through millennia like down like millennia years old like it just goes way back and it's really crazy how in 2020 people in my community still have this fixation on believing that in order to be successful or the only way to get a husband or a wife or to be seen as beautiful or valuable in society you have to be fair skinned to be those things and it's and it's totally wrong and the complex issue about you know seeing fairness as this thing that's going to get you further along in life and if you're dark skinned you you obviously you know work in the sun or and you work in the rice fields it's it's this terrible terrible notion and it is racism it is colorism and i don't agree with it i think i think we should be moving on beyond the color i am at this point but Mm -hmm. because they sell it so heavily in india people are, are, are very uneducated about the effects and there's a lot of harmful things that are in these products like mercury and and things that you wouldn't even put on your face if they were on their own but because they're packaged in such a pretty way they're sold in such an attractive manner people think oh it's just beauty I can put it on my face but really you're putting a lot of harsh chemicals so yeah Mm, is it something that is understated or or it's blatantly exposed in a daily routine it's a struggle for people every single day it's it's it, it it not only is it a a pressure that is put on you from the second you're born, the co- first questions will be asked of a, of a parent is, is the child boy or girl and is it fair? And that is the most ridiculous thing that you could ever, you're already like disrespecting your own child. You know, you're already defaming them. You're already ridiculing them based on if it's a boy, then it's a, a plus. But, you know, boys tend to be a little bit more, I guess, like they, they have a little bit more of a past when they're a little bit more darker in complexion as opposed to if you're, they find out that you're a girl and you're dark-skinned, it's the, apparently the end of the world. So 
it's it's the first moments of when the child is born and then they're fed this this serious problem from their childhood so when they're five years old their aunties their uncles their sisters their cousins you know, the older relatives or even the peers will encourage them to use Fair and Lovely, products like Fair and Lovely that will make them fairer or enhance their complexion. And, and, and it's so insane, young as five years old. And then these kids grow up believing that, you know, that their skin color is something to be hated. And they get older, they get into their 20s, and they're still using it because it's been ingrained, ingrained so heavily. And then when you're growing up as a kid, even for me, watching Hindi cinema, you would always see only fair actresses and fair actors. You would never see people of colour that were deeper toned. And, you know, the people that were villains would always be darker toned. It's just it's it's just not acceptable anymore. Like we need to be teaching young people that this is not acceptable and, and, and skin colour is such a superficial thing to hate someone on and it's something that you can't change. But yeah, it, it's it, it's it's everything. It's marketing, it's movies, it's music. You know, it's, it's even, you know, hiring Russian or British women in the background of music videos in Hindi cinema instead of hiring Indian women to represent themselves on screen. Mm-hmm. It's that white is more beautiful. And it's this idea that Indian women are less attractive. We don't want to represent our own women, but we'll represent the people who colonized us. It's this crazy, crazy twisted mindset. It's, I definitely think it, there's a long way to go. But... It, it, it is slowly changing. How does the caste system relate to colorism? The caste system is a very uh, prominent feature in Indian culture today, and it has been for years. You know, there's all different hierarchies, you know, and I, don't, I can't name you all of the caste systems because there are so many, but I can tell you the top one that is considered the highest, um, and that would be considered Brahmin, and they are you would think, uh, you would say the elite, you know, of the castes. And I think it's, it's totally wrong. I read somewhere where the back way before, you know, the caste system is, it is what it is today. It actually used to be a lot more, you know, fluid. And so the point of a caste system is that the people who are in the higher caste can advance in life, but the people who are in the lower caste can never leave their caste. They have to marry in the caste. They have to, you know, uh, live within the caste. There's certain areas that people from a particular caste got, can't go into a different city or town or community because of persecution or ridicule. So there's a very harsh, harsh structure that people can't advance in life. But it wasn't always like that. There was this fluidity where people within a uh, lower caste system could advance in life and people within a high caste could talk to people in a lower caste to get, you know, to help them with jobs and all of that sort of stuff. There was a lot more trade culture, but now there is obviously a very strict culture with, you know, caste can't, you know, get married. You can't be seen talking to someone with it from another caste. That's, that's very strict. But then in young modern day India, there are a lot of, you know, young 2020 millennials who don't believe in the strictness of the caste system and who do talk to Muslims, who do talk to, you know, would be considered lower caste or higher caste. But yeah, it, it is, uh, for me, if I had the if I had the power, I would totally abolish the caste because it ca- causes a lot of friction in India, causes a lot of violence, it causes a lot of problems for women. And I don't agree with it at all. It's a, it's a, it's a form of, a, you know, people use it as a weapon to divide, and, and it's very, very wrong. And what is the importance of someone's skin colour within this caste system? And I, I imagine that those in the higher castes 
are more Caucasian than those in the lower right. And just let our listeners informed, the caste system in India was officially banned in 1950 in the intention of allowing social mobility and improve the lives of many in the lower caste. But some claim that the caste system, at least the discrimination regarding the, the skin color of someone, is still very much alive in the Indian culture. Yeah, so fair, fair complexion in the caste system would be Brahmin or somebody with it when, so when India was being invaded by the Mughals or when they were being invaded by the Portuguese and, of course, for 200 years, the British, all of those powers were fairer. And so that was associated with complexion. And so power and complexion being fair was considered a very prominent thing of if you were fair, you were a part of a higher caste system. And so if you were darker skinned, you were considered poorer, you were considered working in the rice fields, you were considered with no money or assets, and so you would never be able to you know, be considered as royalty or privileged. And those people who were darker skinned would have to work for those people who were fairer, so like royalties or people in power. And so when the British came, obviously they implemented that very heavily and, and because they were a lot more powerful in terms of weapons and, you know, with the, with the technology that they brought to India in terms of, you know, dividing India with weapons like guns and, you know, all those terrible things like bombs and all those things. I think it was just, it associated power with, you know, with being fair because these white men walked into India or rather, you know, shipped to India and they walked and they came in and they totally just bombarded the culture and and every person every culture that came into India that was trying to invade India that were they were just fairer they were just and and then it's been like that ever since and so mm-hmm. and it's not just like that in India it's like that in places like Vietnam or and Indonesia and places like in Africa in some parts of Africa as well you know the the fairness industry is massive in Africa as well so the caste system is definitely to do with the colonialism and the colonization of India with, you know, the Mongols and the Portuguese and the British being fair and Indian people being dark and poor. So mm-hmm. that's, that's, I guess that's how it is. Yeah, it's a poisoning heritage that has been entrenched for centuries. The ones who perpetrate it and are not in the territory anymore, but this legacy is still there. How do you think these societies can be free of this condition? I... To be completely honest, I don't think this is something that's going to change in my lifetime. I think India has a long way to go in terms of just even getting basic gender equality um, and, and getting basic human rights. And I think when we can get those core values and those core things sorted, only then can we focus on racism and colorism because a lot of that human rights issue is about racism and colorism. And mm-hmm. so when we have the discussions in India, Um, and our culture and our community and and people within India talk about it, who are in power, who have the position to and the privilege to discuss it and possibly make mountains, I guess, move, Um, only then, I guess, will we see a real change Um, because people in power don't care about that. It's a very corrupt system and people only care about money and, and, and fame and you know, who they know, you know, in the military and, and, and warfare and, and in, the, in the government, you know, and, who, and mm-hmm. what can you get out of life? It's not whatever, what is helping other people, but it's a very selfish kind of mentality. Um, 
So when people slowly, you know, become more tuned with everyone else's uh, else's our uh, lifestyles and their struggles and everything, I feel like only then can we be more compassionate in our community to deal with racism and colorism. And I definitely don't see it happening anytime soon. But not saying it won't be done um, because we are moving in that direction. But anything in India, it takes a while. Mm-hmm. Going back to the topic of skin whitening creams, um, whilst I was researching for our talk, I became acquainted with the brand Hell Lovely, which is the reg- biggest brand regarding skin whitening creams. And I discovered that it belongs to Unilever, which is, which ironically is a brand that is known for advocating for body positivity and self-acceptance. And only thing I can find it to think is the concept of double standards, like put your money where your mouth is, at least try. Yeah, no, um, Unilever, um, they're trash, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, same with Fair and Lovely, they're trash. They, I mean, I literally could burn that company to the ground. But I think this whole um, thing about, you know, I don't know if you've heard, but with this idea, they've already changed the name now. So from Fair and Lovely, they've changed it to uh, Glow and Lovely. And I think that is the most ridiculous thing because changing the name of a product is not going to change what is in the tube. People know and they uh, have been so ingrained with this label called Fair and Lovely, they are still going to call it Fair and Lovely whether you put Glow and Lovely on it or not. And when people go and buy Glow and Lovely, that product is is associated with lightening, with skin enhancing, and people are still going to buy it because they believe that it's going to make their skin whiter. And this product and this brand, if they they had a backbone, my opinion, if they wanted to make a revolutionary and landmark change, they would take the product off the shelves. They'd stop making the product altogether. And if they wanted to be a 2020 woke brand, they would re- they would re- create a, pro- a brand new product that was inclusive and diverse and was speaking to the entire market. They, w- they would want to change the narrative and, and forever apologise for the kind of damage psychologically, uh, physically, mentally, um, the, the depression that it has caused people, this... Uh, the anxiety that it has caused people, and they will be forever apologizing for, for the rest of their brand's career, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's how much damage this brand and product has done. And that if they wanted to do it right, that they should take the, sh- the product off the shelves and create a product that is actually inclusive and is going to change the world. And they haven't done that. They've just half done something just to please some audience members just so they can't be quote unquote 2020 cancelled. It's not good enough. As you as you said, many of the chemicals in these creams, such as the metal mercury and asteroids, are extremely dangerous to the human body and in a long length of time you can cause fetal damage, kidney and liver failure, is carrying thinning of skin layers and risk of skin cancer, obviously. But still these projects are being easily sold in masses in South Asian countries. I I do not want to blame the people that use it because I believe they are not the ones to blame, but why do you think these people are willing to risk their lives in order to apply these creams? 
because people in India are very influenced by influential people. So that's famous actors and actresses. That's people who are influencers. As long as people who are in power or position of any kind are continuing to go on and promote these products, it's still going to sell. And a lot of people in India are poor. And a lot of people in India are not educated enough. And a lot of people in India haven't got the resources or the education to, or people around them to tell them that the skin is beautiful. And they will continue to buy it on the basis of their insecurities, not on the basis of that they think that their skin color is not good enough. But buying the product causes them to hate their skin color because they feel like that they need it to feel better. Um, so as long as people are going to promote the product or this ideology that fairness is more beautiful, the longer that we are going to see fair Indians on screen and in media, it's going to continue perpetuating that you have to be fair to be successful. And that is why people are going to continuously buy it. People in power are not fighting against it. And this is why it's still continuing to be sold. There's a lot of countries around the world that have made it illegal. But because of the black market industry, people still find a way to sell the product illegally. So there is no, I hate to say it, but there is no way to totally diminish or demolish this, you know, product, um, you know, consumption. But I think educating people constantly um, about the bad effects that it has and people who are in higher power and influential should use their platforms to talk about it. And I think this whole idea about colorism and racism in India, we need to take, a, we need to take inspiration on the black African-American community and black people in general. They don't talk about Black Lives Matter once and they expect people to jump on the bandwagon and support them. This is a fight and a cause that they want to fight for for the rest of their life, for their people and their ancestors. They are proud to be black. They are proud of what their ancestors went through so they could be here today. They, their parents tell them from a very early age that there is nothing to be ashamed of, of your skin color. This is what your mother gave you. There is such a beautiful support system around their culture. They're proud to be where they are and who they are and they will not be taken lightly and their culture to be disrespected. We need that to be implemented in South Asia, but there isn't that culture yet. And so this is why these products are still going to be sold because people are not fighting for it hard enough and people who are influential are still going to be selling it. And so people who are not aware or as aware are still going to sell it and buy it. Mm -hmm. There is a saying that we can change our societies with our wallets. And I think if it's our topic, because as you said, unfortunately, it's almost impossible to stop the black market of the screen. So so we have to change the culture so the demand can also change as well. And I believe it's important to people understand that we shouldn't blame the ones who use the screams. These screams, unfortunately, are the only way dark-skinned people found, found to, to have social prestige and mobility within the, their societies. And it's really easy to judge the victims of the system and not doing anything proactive that's really effective to help these people. We should judge the system, not people. I mean. Yeah, no, it's, um, it, it is, it, it, it's, it's the society. It, it's what the people have grown up 
you know, around. And it's the same thing with the coronavirus that we're seeing right now. Like a lot of racist people or ignorant people like to blame Chinese people and all Chinese people for the coronavirus. But the thing is, the Chinese people in China are literally ruled by a dictator. And so they have no say. The common person doesn't have a, have a right. And so, you know, the person, the doctor who was literally trying to speak about the coronavirus, well, he died from it and nobody wanted to listen to him. The government tried to sh- keep him quiet. So we need to hold the government and people in power accountable. And this is the same with promoting fairness products um, and, and racism in India, that we need to hold the people in power accountable because they are who is sending the message out there for people, for the common person and the common people, even in the West. We believe everything that we hear sometimes, you know, um, because we think that it's, it's, it's the right thing. But then when you do more digging and you do more researching and, and meeting different people from different backgrounds, you actually learn and, ev- and, and develop your own sense of opinion. And so I think when you're in a situation like India where everybody tends to take everything at face value and doesn't question it, this is why you have a culture and a society that just you know, just does it because that is what the government and the, and the, and the culture of the society preaches. Um, defenders of skin whitening cream say there's no difference between blackface and toning and skin bleaching. So we shouldn't even be addressing this matter. What, what do you think? There's a huge, I'm, I'm quote unquote rolling my eyes right now. Um, <laughs> I think, I think that's a total crap because white people tan for, phys, uh, for visual aesthetics. They want to tan because they see, you know, Greeks and Italian people really tan and they want to emulate that beautiful golden bronze, bronze tone. They don't tan to look Indian. They don't tan to look black. They tan to look Greek or Italian or sometimes they, even like Portuguese. They, yeah, yeah, they do it to look exotic. Is exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So they do it to look exotic. They look they do it to look, you know, Italian and Greek. So I think when people white people tan, it's for visual aesthetic. It's not because they believe that it's not because they have an insecurity as such in, in, in society. They haven't been oppressed by the color of their skin in, in society or ever. It's purely just because they want to look more attractive. They feel like they'll be more attractive. And now even this, is it is wrong. People should just be happy with the complexion that they're born with. But it doesn't have that stigma that they, they don't do it because they, want to, they believe that it's going to advance them in life. They, they're not going to tan and say, oh, I want to get tan so I can get a husband. I want to get tan so I can get a better job. I want to get tan because people bully me for being white. It's none of those things. It's only purely because of aesthetic and looking more pretty and attractive. But when people fit whiten their skin, it is to advance in life. And that's the perception. It is to get a husband. It is to get a, a better life. It is to get a wife and, and to be more successful in, and, and get more powerful. And that is the connotation because of the racism that has been put on people of colour. So there is a huge difference. Um, mm-hmm. of why white people choose to fake tan and why people of colour choose to lighten their skin. You said something about it at the beginning of our talk, about how does it feel to know that your life would be completely different had you stayed in India and or moved to Australia in terms of self-acceptance, self-expressions, sexual identity, and of course the embrace of your skin colour. How does it feel, if you don't mind me asking such a personal question? 
I think it's I, I think it's hard. Like it's 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 hard and then it's good sometimes. Like I have I have moments. Like you know, for me personally, like being an individual, being the way that I am, expressive, outgoing, loud, whatever. Um, I think I do face discrimination. I would say on, on like a regular basis from people, but I don't let I, I don't let that affect me for too long, or I try not to dwell on it. But all you can do is really just try and be happy and just focus on the people that do support you and and living my life the way that I do. It's you know I choose to express myself the way that I do, and and that's just going to have backlash. And I'm just going to have to you know it sounds terrible, but like. We just have to deal with it. You know, not everyone's going to like you. You know, that's that's just human nature. And I think if you're trying to get everyone to like you and try, to, you can only inform people and encourage people to learn and, and, and evolve, but you can't make people like you and you can't make people like the way that you are. And you just have to accept that. And, and if you carry yourself in a particular way, you're just going to have to deal with the, that there's bloody dickheads out there in life, you know? You just have to mm-hmm. put up with it. Now, I'm not saying that you have to accept blatant discrimination and, and, and physical abuse. That's not acceptable. But if it's just a simple, are you gay or are you this or are you that or are you or making sly comments or looking at you down, up and down in a greasy kind of way or somebody's, you know, judging you with the way that you dress I think I think those sort of things are just something you can just brush off your shoulder and sort of just pick and choose your battles, um, which is what I try and do. So yeah, I think I think just try and push forward and try and be the best version of yourself. And the most important thing is be kind, like be kind, be compassionate, be caring, and it's free. All of that is free. And I think people in our generation are so fixated on being liked and being, you know, and having this idea of oh, I love myself. But people in that generation are taking it too far. It's not loving yourself physically. It's it's about loving yourself. Are you a good person? And 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 from that inside, it's about reflecting it on the outside. And if your aesthetic, your physical aesthetic, is attractive, well, then your inside should be just as attractive. You know. So if you if you are very and I don't, some people might not agree, but if you're overly sensitive and you can't handle a little bit of backlash or you can't handle a little bit of constructive criticism or any kind of criticism, I think you need to look on in yourself because I think there's a lot of insecurities that you've got and the second somebody isn't praising you, you have an issue with it. Everybody has insecurities. Everybody's going to get a a criticised at some point in their life and you just have to deal with it. And, you know, we have to worry about projecting kindness onto people and learn, ask people why they think the way that they do. And 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 it's a it's 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 a back and forth kind of a conversation. It's not just cancelling people just because they don't agree with your views or the way that you live. Talk to them about it and understand each other. And that's what I try to do. <laughs> you made my eyes water, you Roshan. <laughs> oh really? Great. Yeah. This is just what I believe. The thing is that you talk so so endlessly and passionately about it. And I believe you are a great source of inspiration for many because because of your backstory and how you have been fighting and again embracing all the wholeness of your personality whilst being unapologetic about it and and educating others at the same time so yeah thank you so thank much thank you so much and i think for me i don't ever i never ever try to see people as less than i always just try and see people as equal and you know, when I see people that are doing 
amazing things. I try and use that that energy where some people might feel jealousy. I try, and the second I feel the inch of jealousy, I talk to myself and I say, you need to get over yourself real quick. Because I think sometimes we need to tell ourselves and need to check ourselves. And I don't think enough people do that. The reason people get jealous or they feel envy is because they don't tell it themselves. They need to take a few seats and actually watch and learn. And when I see someone that I find inspiring or I find myself being like, oh, like, look at them, like they're doing all this stuff and what am I doing? Like, oh, like I don't get to have those opportunities, whatever it may be. I'm, I say to myself, well, what are you doing to do that? Like, what are you doing to achieve what you want? Are you getting out there? Are you pushing harder as you can? I think it's about pushing, holding yourself accountable and pushing yourself further and further and further into something you love instead of dragging other people down. And I think this is what I'm saying about people being overly sensitive and not taking constructive criticism. You have to be able to be critical of yourself sometimes and in a healthy amount, of course, and just try and be inspired by people and, and look up to people instead of, putting other people down so you can sort of feel better and rise yourself up. And loving yourself is loving other people first as well as yourself. That's what I think. So just be trying and be open-minded as possible. And it's not just about exterior. It's also about interior as well. Do you think India has been misrepresented by the mainstream media, especially in journalism? I think it's just the perks. Um, it's just the perks of being an immigrant or a person of color. Like, and perks meaning like a bad thing because, like, you know, every time a Middle Eastern country or a South Asian country, it's always bad news. But, but and that's purely because there's a lot of you know white journalists talking about it and writing these news, and so it's from the perspective of fear. It's not from the perspective of realistic storytelling. It's from the perspective of ignorance and they don't know much about it. So they're just going to shove all the bad things that are happening and just make it a story and let it be known. But they don't tell the you know beautiful things that happen in the country and all the great remarkable things that take place every single day. Um, so I do think in a way in the media, there is a lot of misconceptions and it's not just about South Asia. It's also about Africa. It's about all sorts of countries that are not quote unquote white dominated. Um, and I think, I think it's going to get better and better. The more we have, you know, POCs in those positions of power of writing those stories and going to those places to do those articles and create those narratives but it's it's definitely not as bad as it used to be, so it is getting better. But it, there needs to be a lot more representation, especially in Australia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would you like to say anything else before we wrap up? Oh, well, I want to say thank you so much for having me on this um, <laughs> podcast. I really, really appreciate it. And, you know, to hear me ranting about all of this, and I think I'm really <laughs> grateful that you've been like I've, i'm grateful that you've given me a platform to um tell my story and it's great that you t let other people tell their story as well so what you're doing is you're really helping people find their voice and you know you're telling the stories of you know people that are real people that are everyday um citizens of the world and you're giving a inspiration to other people that are listening in so thank you so much yeah well, I really appreciate your compliments. Thank you so much. But honestly, I I just hope to use this program to spread stories of as many people as possible 
of those who are out there waiting to be discovered. And and it's not really about me. I mean, this podcast is not really about me. It's actually about all of us, I believe. Roshan Saad, that's it. Thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate you being so open about your experiences and allowing us to delve a little bit in your story. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and thank you everyone for listening in and I, I loved it. I love this conversation. So thank you so much. Well, that's it for today's episode, everyone. I do not even know what to say after such talk. I, I am unsettled for being able to share this kind of information to you all and as to myself as well with such warming and uplifting presence or or shall we say voice of Roshan. As we commented in the final part of the interview about his self-acceptance in his own skin is for me some sort of, of a reminder of how in the face of disparities and social injustices we can create our own universe from from which to hone and then honor our plural identities. If there is something Roshan taught me is that we are plural and ever expanding and sometimes it hurts. Not, not everyone is able to also expand their being by letting others do so, but in the end these trepidations are also part of constructing who you are, I believe. You don't need to change external factors to alter what is raging inside inside of you and also inside of the environment you live as well. There is space for all of us and we just have to continue fighting for it. If you'd like to reach out to us to make a suggestion of topic, stories or of potential interviews to be invited to our program, send us a message at the email m-a-t-t-h-a-a-l-o-b-e-s at outlook.com or simply hit me up on Instagram at l-o-o-n-y-m-a-t-t. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'll be delighted if you could please subscribe, review and share our program with your friends. It might help other people to know that their stories are also valid to be told. I'm your host, Matt Lopez, and this was another episode of It Belongs to the People, the podcast where all the voices matter. Bye everyone, take care.